this is Listeners, welcome to this brand new far out episode of Warped Celluloid. I'm your host Jack Rourke with my esteemed co-host Chandler Williams. How's it going, Chandler? How's the vibes today? Pretty good, Jack. You know, just rewatched this film before the podcast and uh, excited to talk about it. How about you? I've I've admittedly been better, but you know what? I'm holding together and I'm still doing this with you, and that's all that matters. Before we move on, I do I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a couple of things. Our last episode, I think, we're in. If you listen to us, please give us some feedback. We're in back, like subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Twitter. All we're in that nonsense, but I feel like this is probably one to be proud of. Proud of, but I'd be remiss if we didn't mention a couple of things. Well, I didn't. I remember I uh, might have quoted another podcast cast a little too much. Just it wasn't that significant, but I feel like I should bring it up and apologize really quick. quick in case it ends up being. Uh, I don't want. I don't like beating. Yeah, still can't say my own words breeding bad blood with people you know yeah yeah i don't i don't think you did yeah i like it just in case like okay the, i know this isn't plagiarism but it, i just don't want to right and poke the bear you know yeah of course also another thing less far less serious there is a topic i really wish we talked about in regards to joaquin phoenix's performance in inherent Vite. he needs to do more comic performances him and ryan gosling especially yeah. because they handle it so well or one doing the very uh, low, or in the low key dry effort, and the other very manic and expressive and physical. Oh yeah, he uh, um, Joaquin Phoenix is hilarious in, in Hair Advice. Um, yeah, definitely the, the physical aspect. Uh, he you know gets thrown thrown around and pushed over and stuff. Very funny. And to carry over this into our next film, to borrow a phrase from Martin Short's character, it's not groovy to be insane. So Chandler, what movie are we going to be talking about today? Today we'll be talking about Shock Corridor. The motion picture screen opens the door to sights you've never seen before. Shock Corridor. The medical jungle doctors don't talk about. A labyrinth of twisted detours that both sexes stumble along. Case history number one. Johnny B. Brilliant newspaper reporter, suffering from hallucinations that his sweetheart is his sister. Johnny. Don't ever do that! Don't you ever kiss me like that again! What's the matter? What is it, Johnny? Tell me! You're exciting the other patient by shouting! Johnny! Johnny, you Diagnosis, erotic dementia. Forgive me for saying it, Miss Barrett, but there's something very strange about this case. Case history number two, Kathy B. Stripteaser, young, intelligent, beautiful. Do you think I like singing in that sewer with a hot light on my navel? I'm doing it because it pays more than shorthand or clerking or typing. I know that. Kathy's torrid performances, however, reveal her avid reaction to the excitement of male audiences. Diagnosis, manic sensualism. Case history number three, Robert T., the lone Negro student who stepped out of a white university into a straitjacket. Run, Smith, run! Run, run, run! Diagnosis, acute schizophrenia. 
Don't you dare strike me. I'm pregnant. Shock Corridor, the incredibly realistic story that reveals the strange intrigues, the criminal impulses, the obsessions that explode into violence. Because I want her and nobody's going to keep us apart. I want her now. Then there was a day Johnny was trapped in the ward of love-maddened women. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. Love that title because it's a great B movie title. You got to say it with like real finesse and like show me just like shock corridor. Very finessed. Um, yep. No, yeah, it's a it's a fun spooky, you know. Also, uh, it's yeah. a, a kind of influential among other filmmakers, but we will get to that in a moment. First things first, the main topic of the discussion: the work of one Samuel Fuller. And for those who don't know him, he's this filmmaker from, he was active from around the 1940s to basically the early 80s. He started out as a copy boy to a local newspaper, then a, and then a crime reporter. Then he got drafted into World War II. Not only did, if I'm not mistaken, he served over the beaches of Normandy. I'm not entirely sure if that's factually accurate, but I know he definitely served because uh, he was there to help liberate one of the concentration camps and captured 16 millimeter footage while he was down there. Wow, that's a fun fact. Then he became a novelist for a brief period of time. Start and started out Columbia as a filmmaker, do, mostly writing for people like uh, Douglas Sirk. Actually, the film that we're doing right here was originally written for Fritz Lang. Mm. He also wrote, I believe, he wrote Scarlet Street for Fritz Lang too, if I'm not mistaken. And so that was, I mean, this was a script he had in a drawer for the, since the 1940s, I believe. Yeah, it's the 40s. Anyway. Anyway, he started out doing uh, westerns and noir films at Columbia. Then he started in the '60s. He started to get a little more—I don't want to say transgressive, but more socially conscious and experimental. Not just this, but films like *The Nazi Kiss*. He wrote the screenplay for uh, Peter Bogdanovich's *Targets*, which I believe I mentioned in the past. Which, wow, talk about a movie that feels especially prescient today. Great and film, about awesome. Or yeah. stuff like mass shootings in the minds of a psychopath, which it's legitimately unnerving for a movie from the late '60s. I yeah, also put it on a double feature with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, because wow. Because it deals with uh, fantasy and reality because it's also the final film of Boris Karloff. He plays a retired horror film actor and he was caught up in this uh, horrible, horrible chaos. What, wasn't he a horror film actor in real life too? Yeah. Yeah, he was Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. Universal. Anyway, so... Fuller, one of the reasons I'm fascinated is, is that the guy was about, or not only the guy he wrote about, but he was t exceptionally talented as a filmmaker. Or, or there's a great, and by the way, if you had the Criterion channel or I have the Blu-ray, um, <clears throat> sponsored by the Criterion. Uh, yeah, <laughs> sponsored by the oh, Criterion. Boy. We're never going to outlive that gag, are we? No, I, I, it's funny every time. That's fine. <laughs> as long as people don't take it too seriously. Yeah. Anyway, my point was, there's a great documentary on the Shot Corridor uh, Criterion Blu-ray, and it's also on the on the channel if you got the streaming option called the the movie camera the typewriter and the rifle 
it's one of those in that order. No, it's the typewriter, the movie camera, and the... I can't remember the order of this. Damn it. Then again, I just woke up, so... Typewriter, the rifle, and the movie camera. Thank you. I just added I mean, it It's a great moments. documentary. It's less than an hour long. It's got interviews from Jim Jarmusch, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, who probably the most relevant in this conversation, because this film in particular inspired a certain film from re- him recently. Uh, this is the main inspiration for Shutter Island. Ooh, I could see that. Nice. Yep. And his... Uh, I mean, one of his best films, uh, The Steel Helmet, was an inspiration for uh, Raging Bull. Film, wow. Which I still need to see. I have not seen it either. Yeah. I'm scared to admit that I have not seen that film. Not, look, man, I still haven't seen Godfather Part 2. There's a lot of shit I still need to catch up on. Yeah, me too. That's okay. Fuller is one of my, one of my favorite filmmakers, not just because, again, he was the guy you wrote about. Like, that dude is very much a true cigar chomp. And chomping, dude served in World War II, but he's always had like bright spirits about it, even if he you know, will agree that it was kind of, well, not even kind of, it was rough as hell. He seems like an old old school Hollywood type. Yeah. Although I am sad how his career ended because uh, he did a film in the '80s called White Dog, Rain Dog, that got basically shuttered by its studio, it got violent reactions from people, and mostly unfair. It was a, for those who don't know, it's a movie about a a titular white dog who is trained to hurt and kill black people, and it's well basically about this this black dog trainer trying to deprogram it to see if you or if he's beyond saving. It's a it's not exactly a subtle film. I don't think it's racist at all. It's I don't get how anyone can interpret it that way. It's about tearing down that indeed, which I would like to talk about. No white dog. Anyway, uh, white dog for a second. It got pulled from Paramount. I mean, festivals circuits were uh, not kind. And uh, well, if you look at what Fuller had to say at the time, it's not especially kind. He it definitely hurt him, very personally in his career. Dude moved to Paris after that for pretty much his, the rest of his life. Wow. Anyway, I, I, I know Corridor. very little about him, and this right, is the only. A, right, not exactly. Right, the movie. I remember discovering this a couple of years ago because I'm like, I, re- I, you, sorry, you got it. This, this is the only uh, Fuller movie I've seen actually. What to start out with? Because some of his films are actually quite easy to find. Some of them are into a public domain limbo, like not exactly, but you can still find them for free on YouTube and Amazon Prime, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, without much hassle, only because I heard the story about him. Like I remember hearing about a movie. He didn't he? There was a movie he did in the early eighties called The Big Red One with uh, Lee Marvin and Mark Hamill that was based around his time in World War Two. And I'm like, then I looked up into the actual legend behind him. Like, damn, this guy is cool. Well, I got to check his stuff out. I think it is important to talk about his work in phases because there's this mainstream studio fair at the time. There's his sixties work, which started to get a lot more well, if not experimental, at least boundary pushing and uh, tra- transgressive. His post eighty work, which kind of was a mix of the two. Yeah, he fought in the seventies. He did a couple major films in the eighties, and then uh, kind of fell off from there. You can tell he really goes for it. In yeah, this film. a lot of um, it's really held back. We, I'm not sure. I mean, we've been kind of uh, towing the line of whether or not something's truly weird, but rewatching Especially... this, I'm like, good God, just the dream sequences involved, involving uh, the girlfriend character once he's in these. Those those are be- absolutely beautiful. Like the overlay where she's tiny on his chest. And he's sleeping. Yeah, the uh, original Invisible Man from the 30s. Oh yeah, that looks fantastic. Reminds me of the Universal uh, or an Invisible Man film from the 30s, and that it is. De- I mean, it, is it aged those by today's standards? I'm not sure. Some would probably say not, but oh, for yeah. its time, absolutely. It, I mean, because I mean, it's. I also think the fact that it is supposed to be dreamlike in this kind of lu- I mean, lucid fever dreams I mean, type thing does um, give it a little bit of leeway to not look entirely ris- realistic. But it, it entirely works, works, and it also I mean, like its little details too. The fact that he like kind of. Co- and his acting like go goes along with it, so it kind of immerses you in the illusion a lot better. That whole movie is like that, but like the and the cuts to color footage whenever we're talking, whenever uh, some of the inmate and patients talk about some of their stories, 
there's always in the good god that scene at the end with with the rain cutting back and forth between uh, the waterfall the and everything. It's just mad. Um, but the, the case, so uh, give us a summary. It's about this journalist who who wants to really infiltrate a mental hospital to, to uh, not even expose corruption. He just heard about that there was a murder inside and there and wants to get the bottom of it so he can earn a Pulitzer. His motives are entirely selfish. Everyone involved except for the doctors trying to tell, teach him how to fake being insane. He thinks it's a horrible idea, not just because it's unethical, but he might end up hurting himself in the process. And, well, shit happens. To put it lightly, I don't want to spoil. At least not yet. I mean, that's for later on the podcast. I do like it also that this is very much a B movie wearing the skin of A movies. Like, you know, the stuff with Constance Towers, her doing her stripper routines, reminds me of those old musical numbers and in, in old 40s movies. Like, I mean, when, when the put the blame on main number of Rita Hayworth as in Gilda and that kind of thing. Or it gets kind and of like it also, soft corn. Structurally, it is very 1940s. So, like, when I was heard... And that this was originally a script for Fritz Lang, it made a lot of sense for me. But one thing about the story, I didn't think the the murder was as clear in the beginning as it could have been. I just thought he wanted to in, infiltrate the um, mental hospital just to write a story instead of uh, find a murderer, expose corruption, speak truth to power, and whatnot. And yeah, I completely agree. I honestly forgot that the movie was even about a murder at one point. Yeah, it wasn't until the like the minute the middle. I was like, oh yeah, okay. I oh, yeah, he's supposed he's... to be, right, like, didn't someone die here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the movie is a little fast and loose when it comes to plot. Like, the first, I'd say, 15 or 20 minute, I mean, minutes worth setting it all up, that's the most plot-oriented, and then it comes to the end. Yeah, and the rest of it is a little more episodic. It, it mainly goes, once he's inside the mental hospital, it goes be, from uh, moment to moment, where he interviews three people. Or three pe- people. A man who is, who is brainwashed into being a communist and then hated by his own country. A black or a young black college student who was one of the first to go into desegregated school or schools and then internalize some of the disgustingly racist rhetoric that was thrown his way, and then and then a man who created the, who worked on the atomic bomb who has regressed to the mind of a six year old. Their names escape me at the moment, but that I think I got the general breakdown correct. Yeah, you did. Um, I was watching the um, like the. Uh, observations on film art segment on um, this film from the Criterion Channel, sponsored by Criterion Channel. Um, but Fuller said that this film was about the flaws of America and shows them clearly through those three patients. Basically, America is one giant madhouse. Yeah, like xenophobic, racist, and um, which it was at the time. Right yeah, the time, yeah. like. If there's one thing I do like about Fuller's films is that is that they're kind of honest about their time. They don't try to sugarcoat anything. And good God, the Naked Kisses movie, I'm still shocked, is came out in 1964, considering how heavy its subject matter is, and about how the way it treats sex workers and political corruption and all that. Like it puts it in very blunt terms, and I'm just kind of shocked. granted this was an age where I mean, Lucille Ball couldn't even say the word pregnancy on TV. Wow. I mean, not the exact time. That was in the mid-50s, and this was early to mid-60s, but it's it was close enough to still be fresh in the memory. Yeah, I uh, I want to watch... I would like to watch that. You mentioned the film was more of a, or in a metaphor about the... than uh, hang-ups about America, Biles. Right, there's also the debate over how this film treats the mentally ill and mental health care in general, and whether or not it's in good taste. Not sure, but I don't think it's outright tasteless, because I don't... I mean, one of the things I like about it is, again, it doesn't stereotype or, 
or make these people okay kind of does stereotype orientate because again this is still the 60s our understanding of uh mental health i mean health wasn't that sophisticated yet and arguably still isn't but we're still hey we're getting there yes my my point is it doesn't try to make these people less than human is that again all three of the people he's interviewed i mean are still people and they're in trauma I mean, they're clearly people whose traumas were meant to take seriously and empathize with to his to one extent or another i think that's what ultimately what makes I mean, what makes it defendable yeah it it does not dehumanize them like other films have done to the mentally ill yeah the, we've had this debate for a long time i think it, and again it cropped i remember i was listening to the episode on this and uh, ace in the hole a couple days ago written for research or in a sleep of a podcast called sleaze always neighbor already brought up that the conversation around this was res- resemblant of the conversation around Ammonite Shyamalan's split which that is more, I'd argue a bigger gray area because the film's more recent, isn't, and it, that is a full-on horror movie. While this at least tries to talk about some modern social issues. I actually have not seen it, but I see your point. What's fun? I don't love it as much as other people do, do, but it is pretty good. It is. And talking about someone who has um, struggled with mental or in mental health, I don't think this film is as backwards as some or some might think. I mean, based on that trailer, because I remember of. Uh, Oh my god! One, of, I love one of the little these. This little tidbit in particular is my favorite. Is a, uh, I mean, one of the reasons Fuller wasn't entirely um, satisfied with the end product was because they sold it like a the B movie it was, and he thought this was his like Oscar movie. He's like, no. I mean, I respect that you take your art that seriously, but dude, you're making a B movie. Admit you're making a B movie. There's no shame in that. Yeah. Um. I mean, we're still talking about it like 50 years later. It's in the Criterion collection. A good chunk of his films are actually. They just, I think they just added Forty Guns last year, which is a great Western needed for Columbia. Wow. Yeah, it was, I'm probably gonna watch. I shot Jesse James on the Criterion channel in a couple of days. Nice. I, I, I want to get to the Naked Kiss at some point. Yeah, that's probably one of the easiest to track down because it's again Amazon Prime canopy, and it's not a hard film to track down if you know where to look. I do like again going back to the B movie, the skin of a movie thing is that again this feels like it feels like a lot of bastard journalist movies from that time. Like you know, already mentioned Ace in the Hole. Like hell, the comparison is so obvious that someone even made, again did an entire podcast episode comparing the two movies. It also reminds me of stuff like you're in a sweet smell of success. So it's basically any movie from that time period that isn't entirely on journalism's side, and sees kind of the rotten underbelly of it. Mm, yeah. The people who are only in it for, who are doing the right thing for the entirely the wrong reasons. And even then, it's not always the right thing. And this film definitely takes that uh, stand. Yeah. Yeah, in the end, uh, yeah, th- again, this is a movie that is about as a jackhammer, but it, it does it well. I mean, like in the opening scene, again, no one wants him to go through, no one with sense wants him to go through with this. His girlfriend's like, are you sure about this? I mean, even, I mean if it is tasteless isn't tasteless it's still probably gonna mess with your head and well she's not wrong spoiler alert yep spoiler it does he he, he, yeah he's he's catatonic in the end Um, i remember the first time i watched this actually it was late at night and i was with my parents and they're you know had the blog a little too loud and they're like what the hell are you watching and with all the screaming and like the dude when dude thinks he's Pavarotti just singing at him and he's I, I just realized how much of this movie is dedicated just to emasculating or the main character. <laughs> yeah, my Peter, room, Peter my, Breck, that's the name of the actor. Yeah, yeah, my my roommates watched Johnny it. Barrett. 
when I talk uh, about an early '60s character name. Oh, totally. My roommates walked in when I was watching the, um, or when I was at the part where he walks into the women's um, wing and they like attack the him. Award? Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Which is like the worst part to walk in on. Um, if I can issue yeah. a preemptive apology, I'm sorry that you had to watch <laughs> the weirdest shit with them walking in. Yeah, it happens. It happens. But um, I still remember the time when we were watching Wizards and she was oh, yeah. in the part with the propaganda. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Okay, oh, then. It's not what it looks like. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was funny, awkward, but still. Yes, I think, yes. I think probably the closest thing to a mainstream comparison I can think of is this is One Floor with a Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Although that is a lot more uh, prestige. Like, it's still really fun. Foreman has a stacked cast. It's a, I mean, it's a lot... I mean, the imagery is less lurid and... Uh, rid- I don't want to say ridiculous, but out less. it's definitely less out there. It's a lot more um, tame and grounded by comparison. I actually have not seen it, but I, I know of it. I've seen bits and pieces of it, and I think I saw it once when I was young, but I cannot remember. I remember, I remember the basic outline. I think I started the book, but yeah. I keep forgetting that's based on a book. Yeah, it was uh, Ken Kinsley. I think he wrote it. Ah. Speaking of names that sound like or they came out of that time period, it's <laughs> Ken Kinsley. Yes. Anyway, I do think that, I mean, as much as I love this movie, and I think I'm the one who should do it for, I mean, first, uh, I do have some slight problems with it. Again, they're minor. I, for a 100 minute movie, it is very well paced, but I do think it could have been cut down by like five minutes. Yeah, some. some like, it, it, it could have been a really neat, lean, like 90, 90, 95 minute. Yeah, some some things feel, feel filler um, just, to, just to feel the time, but. uh. Like padding, yeah. Yeah, yeah, padding. So that's a good I think you, way to say it. I oh my god, I just thought of the funniest way to describe this. Imagine this is the PSA from hell. <laughs> like this is basically <laughs> what if Reaver Madness was competent. Oh yeah. And actually knew what he was talking about. And covered in the nineteen sixties. I also one of the reasons I think I think this is okay or the depiction of mental health, while not entirely spotlit. List and free of criticism is most only gets by my me is that it's not entirely about mental health and it uses the, the mental health care system as kind of a conduit to talk about America at large. Yeah, more as a backdrop. That, that and the presentation is so odd, odd and trippy that you kind of just you're either going to groove at this movie or you're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good good way to put it. Yeah. Um, I also more or less feel the same way about Shutter Island and. Actually, I wonder what these two would look like back to back as a rain double feature. That would be a good one. Because I actually just watched uh, Shutter Island for the first time la- last March. Oh, nice. Yep. Probably my top tier Scorsese in my book. Oh, I'd want to yeah. see him do more genre more often because he, just going off of Shutter Island alone, he is incredibly proficient at it. Yeah, that, that's one of my favorite of his. Um, yep. Yes. And th- the movie was de- deliberately. Not to the extent of something like The Good German, where they went all out with like using the same aspect ratio, they used the same lighting method. It's that movie is probably the closest anyone is going to get to faithfully recreating old Hollywood films from the 30s and 40s. Which film? And speaking, and speaking of uh, The Good German, and speaking of Steven Soderbergh, uh, this would make another movie. This would probably pair well with is Unsane, which uh, that mental hospital movie he shot with an iPhone a couple years ago. Wow. This is probably the be- definitely the better film. Or in a film, or in, but I would say that would definitely make an interesting uh, conversation. 
Yeah. Like it's the whole, whole mental illness variety hour, which good oh. God, that name sounds more tasteless the more I say, think about it. Wow. I mean, there are a lot of differences between this film and Shutter Island, though. Oh, definitely. Certainly, Shutter Island is unabashedly fantasy, or in full fantasy at this point. Or in point, it doesn't really try to tack, or tackle themes that are this raw and real. Like, it's definitely a serious film, or in a film, but it's not. That's more of an outright horror movie than this is. Yeah. And it, it's got the psychological psychological edge and, like, the mindfuck um, ending, you know. Yeah. The, or the, what DC Comics called the Just Desserts ending, like, this actually kind of feels read from, like, one of the, or those old pulp magazines or one of the easy, not the horror stuff, but, like, or like the crime suspense story. Or stories in the like thriller, or the kind of or shock suspense story. Or the kind of thing that was a lot more socially conscious, and the one of the things that got, if anything, more than the horror comics, which is weird considering how gory those were, especially by fifties standards. That was the thing that probably got them more shit than anything. I could talk all day about this kind of stuff. I I love old fifties comics. I am totally unfamiliar with fifties comics, but uh, you know, Tales from the Crypt. That's that guy. Those guys, like anthology horror and, and war and sci-fi and crime, that kind of thing. Okay, okay. This has that feel that, I mean, their crime lineup is what I'm saying. Even the intro, good God, that trailer, which I'm pro- probably already dropped in by now. All right, now, it entirely, there are times where we can talk about how accurate a movie is, but I think that trailer 100% sells you what kind of movie this is. And in some ways, a little more clear and direct about the storytelling than uh, the actual movie is. <laughs> The trailer for this film? Yep. You know, it's got that cla- that classic feel like it's got the, it got the iris fade, it fades and that narrator, that great narrator voice and the fading in titles. It's good, good stuff. Very like classic Hollywood. Yeah. Yes. I also uh-huh. think for a movie right of this era where sound design wasn't that all that all that sophisticated, mostly is like occasionally a sound effect when you need it, and mostly just dialogue and mute and occasionally music. I think there is some good sound design here in parts. Or like yeah, again, yeah. the water, the waterfall raining sequence near the climate, right, climax, and there's the way, or the use of narration. In it's it's parts. it's very full. Like it it doesn't um, they don't not to the extent of like say Walter design. Murch or what we have now, but it's def it's a little more sophisticated than other stuff. At the time. Yeah, than like other stuff at the time. Um, yes. I don't know. One of the reasons I was a little. I was interested in talking about this because I'm not sure if I can find describe Sam Fuller's specific type of B movie because it's definitely smarter, or smarter and more uh, tuned into socially, really than a lot of other stuff of its time. Time and in some regards has aged a lot better, or better. But I don't want to outright call it sophisticated because it doesn't feel like it's above B movie stuff. It feels like it's revel. I think the best exploitation films are the kind, in kind that acknowledge that they're trying to cover social issues, but also acknowledge that what people hear. Are here for is some of this kind of sleazy, kind of tacky, kind of lur- lurid stuff, and try and balance them out. That's why the yeah. original Shaft work where it works. It's why and why Russ Meyer films work. Although those are way less socially conscious. I still can't believe Roger Ebert wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Mm. That is a story for another day. <laughs> anyway, back to the Shock Corridor. I'm sure it was more. This film was more. Um... Like socially sophisticated when it came out than it is now. It was kind of a cult movie at the time too, because again, this was I mean, this was fringe of the fringe, or in fringe of the time. Not to the degree of where you'd probably I mean, the only way you'd heard of this is if you saw an episode of Mystery Science Theater, 
theater, but it definitely played like smaller theaters and really only became a cult favorite among other filmmakers. Or in like, or in like, it's your favorite filmmaker's favorite movie. Okay. Movie yeah. Movie. Yeah, me too. I, I, there's a decent amount of humor in this film, which I find yeah. really. I was gonna funny. say Fuller, One of the things I love about Fuller is how crackling his dialogue can get. Like, there's a propulsive and there's an actual back and forth between the two people. It's also really good character building stu- and stuff. Like, again, the girlfriend is probably the, the smartest character of this entire movie. I mean, like, the only reason people don't take her seriously is because she's a stripper. But judging by the way she talks, it's clear she knows what's going on and going on and has a better handle on it than pretty much everyone else in the room. Yeah, but not, no one's listening to her because she's a stripper. And she only goes along with it until after a lot of convincing, and even then she's still uneasy about it. Yeah. And can you blame her? I'm like, it's actually... And again, for, I mean, this is an age where love interest in movies could be really bland. And like, I mean, it's one of the reasons I didn't think Douglas Sirk in movies haven't really clicked with me yet, because I tried watching stuff like Magnificent Obsession or Written in the Wind or that those kind of lofty melodramatic romances, technicolor romances. I'm really trying to get into them but they're just not for me. Something like this I can work with because the or in the second half of that equation you know, it actually has more character and motivation and or there's more of a dynamic there. There's, I think there's better uh, written also. Yeah, true. Although funny enough, Sam Fuller did write a Douglas Cirque movie in the late 1950s called Shockproof. I watched it on the Criterion channel a couple months ago. It's not bad. Yeah, I definitely want to get into more Sam Fuller, um, especially after rewatching this film. Hey, did you ever have to check out that documentary? No, I uh, added it to my list, though. It is definitely, honestly, if I could make a recommendation to the listeners, watch that first and then get into his movies. This It sets the right context. Okay, totally. Consider it like a primer on his work. Yeah. Is it is it just um, centered around him? Yeah, it's just centered around him. Around him and his work. Work. It's a generally like holistic overview of it. And I think I think it was made for TV at the time. I remember Tim Robbins is the narrator. Nice, yeah. And Tarantino is on the um the, like, There's a great cover. section where he's talking about the steel helmet and he's just completely geeking out about it. Matter like, oh my god, that's the helmet from it. And this is one of the mo- first movies he saw watching with adults. Like this felt adult at the time. Right time and serious and groundbreaking. And t- the way he talks about that opening shot, I'm like yeah, this is engaged really engaging yeah i love uh like watching interviews with directors that i love especially when they're really enthusiastic over their crowds i remember uh, watching an interview with denis villeneuve and the way right on the blade runner 2049 blu-ray and the way he talked about uh talk working with actors and how exciting it is and like you I mean the enthusiasm it just kind of rubs off on you you know like it's just so genuine and raw yeah it makes you feel excited about um, films. It's also insightful mm-hmm. too. It's not just random wax and grand about it. It actually has on to it. It adds personal experience and on set. Yeah, you learn more about the um, craft and like being a director um, and and aspiring filmmaker. I think. And speaking of which, uh, one of the reasons why I find it annoying when people look down on B movies and stuff like that and try to act like they're above genres, like we've seen this recently with the term elevated horror, which. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just thinking about that phrase makes me want to just run over to the toilet and vomit. Give me I mean, some examples of that. Like, pretty much every horror movie from the last couple of years that's tried to be hereditary. Mm, okay. Like, 
I don't want to name too many names because I don't like, again, I don't want to just shit on people's work indiscriminately, but there are some films that are clear, clearly just empty and vacuous and they don't really add a lot or a lot to it. For their claims that these are deeper and more intelligent than the average horror movie, they don't really do a lot to work to prove that. Okay, that, no, that that makes total sense, and thank you for not, you know, just trashing on people's work. But yeah, no, I get that. I mean, I probably said I mean, said some nasty thing, things in the past or in the past about movies, but I try to keep that to a minimum these days. Yes, and not just totally. my own career work because it generally just feels unfair. Yeah, yeah. Or like again, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Exactly. I mean, but I like this something like this better that is able to balance the two. I mean, too, and sometimes there's also. I mean, the whole talk of recently about how I mean, whether or not something oppressively grim, like it's it started out with Game of Thrones, but now it got back into it thanks to that the Last of Us sequel that just came out a couple months ago. You know, whether something that is consistently oppressively grim with little le- I mean, levity is still set impactful emotionally because there's nothing else to ba- counter out balance it. Mm. Like you need a light to balance. I mean, like granted, there is a point. Like I think I love Thor Ragnarok, but. I do think that movie does go way too far in the silliness to where it does kind of throw things off. I, I, yeah. right, but there's a point. I mean, sorry for the rant again, but there's a point near the end that still makes me mad because it's it literally undercuts a big dramatic moment. It should have been silence, but they threw in a quick joke, and it just completely ruins that moment. No, I I completely agree agree about the Ragnarok. I honestly did not. Um, I wasn't the, big, the biggest fan of it, but uh, I like it. But it's a movie that. I am very, very mixed on. Like, it is half a great movie and just half a very mediocre movie. Yeah, yeah. The the, the humor in the Marvel movies have de- has definitely been, like, cancerous for yeah. the genre. Anyways. That Joss Whedon, hey, let's see who the smartest person in the room is. Yeah. And the problem is it, I mean, it leads to poor uh, character writing, too. I mean, too, because you can't, I mean, because no one talks like their own person. They all kind of sound the same. Exactly. I can't remember if I mentioned this to you before or on the air or off or before, but a problem in writing, which thankfully isn't isn't here because this is or as silly as this gets. Sometimes it definitely has a very well structured script. Like I would love to go back and read Fuller on the page. Oh yeah, totally. Really is like one of the advice I was given that I take into heart as a writer is like if you take a script's dialogue and you can switch it around with any character and it wouldn't make a difference, then you have a problem. Yeah, it, every character has to sound. I remember you told me that, but I remember, it was something. It stuck with me ever since. It's, that's good advice. Every character should sound distinct, um, distinctly different. Yeah, totally. I, I also think exploring a serious ideas through genre is actually right, like this. To, right, does is one of the easiest ways to right, to get it across to a broader amount of people. Well, and not just like in a more commercial sense, but a way that registers universally because it's separated just enough or enough from the real world to be enjoyable but it hits close to home enough to be recognizable wow very well said and and if there's one and going back to marvel for a second uh there's one film i was reminded by that does this really well it's guardians of the galaxy volume 2 which i remember i rewatched that astro last night and now i think about it those would make a real an oddly good double feature space that daddy issues the double bill <laughs> But that is a conversation left for smarter people for another day. Yes, indeed. Um, I think in this film, I think there's a there's really good character development of the patients, especially the three that they cover. Yeah, the the three that are mainly that are loosely loosely or otherwise 
why it's connected to the murder. Yeah. Like, again, all right, poor Trent, that's his name, the college student. Yes. All right, no, no, no. I'm like, I, I think I feel sorry for him the most because he's clear, and he clearly was just a normal right, dude thrust in these circumstances, and, uh, well, he had to bear the consequences of it. And you I mean, know, like his whole story, just the him, or scene of him what, right, reciting that, right, that racist rhetoric with that, with that sign with, well, you know, I'm not gonna yeah. say the word. Yeah, yeah. Or the word for obvious reason. But the way he said, it's not just the what he's saying; it's the way he says it, the impassioned, or in a way. But it's clearly that it's kind of breaking him on the inside, even if he, or has been deluded to the point of genuinely believing it. But it is legitimately unnerving and un. Un, but not unnerving in a horrible way. Unnerving as in a, it's like watching a or in a relative di, or in a die of else or in of Alzheimer's or Parkinson, something that fundamentally changes that or in them and how they used to be. It's that kind of heartbreak. Yeah, uh, I think there's a comedic to, a comedic aspect to it in its irony also. Oh yeah, oh definitely. I mean, this is again, this is still a B movie, so it's not entirely yeah. serious. <laughs> yes, it's like an exploitation. A very early exploitation picture because I don't think we really got that term until like the very late sixties. Because once and once the drive-ins finally got their hate during their second heyday, and arguably third now thanks to COVID. Also, Trent was the original Black Klansman. I was about. To, I remember and going back to that Sleazoid episode. So I'm like, please don't do it. And I'm like, damn it, they already made the Clayton Bigsby comparison. I'm like, damn, this is Dave Chappelle. I guess it's going. You know what's funny is uh, actually uh, Sam Fuller did uh, one of the early drafts of Elite, The Klansman, which actually was one of the first big Hollywood movies to talk about this stuff, or specifically this sector of it. Mm, okay, interesting. It, that is a uh, much more uh, heated and uh, violent and uncomfortable movie than this is, but I don't. But it's of a kind. What's what's it called? The Klansman. Okay. Uh, did you see the Black Klansman or Black Klansman? I did. I have some mixed feelings about about that and Spike Lee in general, general. But there are moments of it that I do think really shine through. Like Adam Driver's subplot is really crystallized and well thought out. Now, and John David Washington gives a movie star performance in that. Like, where this is a guy like, how is this guy not getting phone calls to be in everything right now? I'm really happy he landed the role in Tenet. Oh yeah, in the lead. I mean, good for him. Good. Also, very sad that it is delayed. Yeah, even look, longer. it's unavoidable. It's un- yeah. I'll I'll be shocked if movie theaters are even open by next year. Wow. I mean, I'm hoping I'm hoping for the best. Yes. But expecting the worst at this point. But I also really respect um Warner Brother Warner Brothers for um just not like releasing Tenet at home. For not risking people like definitely. I mean, it's the only let, let's face it. They re- it's it's best for them and it's best for everyone because let's face it. Once movie theaters are open, they help. The way that's the only way they can actually make money off of this and not earn feel guilty about it. Exactly. Yeah. And even then, if they did open it now, they'd still probably lose a shit ton of money considering how or how much restrictions are under theaters. If I'm still wondering if even multiplexes are open. I know drive-ins are. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it seems crazy. I haven't been to the movie theaters in so long. Yeah. I w- actually this I imagine this something like this would be fun to watch at a drive. I love the sixty or in the sixties black and white photography to it because it's got a real grit to it. Right? Oh, yeah. But there's also a real clean, right, a clean prestige to it. Right? Har- certain shots, like his long takes, are really impressive. Oh yeah, like, uh, I think what well, I developed this thing with long takes. Like the more showy it is, the less impressive. Like I think the long take I go back to, and a lot of people is uh, 
our guest Brody last and we mentioned Jaws a lot. And if you're listening to this, hello. There's the shot in there where he, where Murray Hamilton and Roy Scheider were talking to each other on that, uh, but on that ferry, and uh, it the the shot goes on for seven minutes or in minutes, and uh, you don't even notice it because you're just locked into them talking because it doesn't do any flashing move. movements. It gets you into the scene. Yeah, that this, this I think operates on a similar uh, modus operandi, and it accomplishes so much more. Um then it, it is so flashy and there's just so much to look at and you can't take it all in which is just overdone now yeah but um no going back to the lighting i love how it's like super harsh at times but it's yeah. still it still feels very clean and 60s elegant um it's weird to me whenever people moments. say black and white is ugly considering how well if you get the right light or lighting and the light person to shoot it black and white can look gorgeous oh yeah and again, the problem is uh, again poor, poor lighting and, co- and contrast and stuff like that. That is like a poor, and the reason people do that isn't just the problem with black and white; it's just a problem with the image in general. Like, the, like if you look at uh, the lighthouse, which came yeah, out. Yeah, that's a movie. Look, and that's also a great example. Well, or or Dead Man, which we're gonna cover uh, next month, actually. Oh, totally. Beautiful examples of how black and white can be just amazing, um, and not like. Just feel old. I also wonder if this is one of the movies bouncing around in Coppola's head when he was making Fish, considering the striking way this movie uses color footage. Which, if I'm not mistaken, was stuff uh, Fuller shot previously for documentaries. I don't remember the name of which ones, but they were definitely not shot for this. They were repurposed later. And they work. I really, really yeah, like I was going to say, it does fit quite naturally in the, under, in the context. Also, speaking of uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, did you hear about that uh, Netflix prequel it's getting? Oh, no. From the creator of Glee. Oh, no. Vomit. Wait. Look, there's a lot of talented people behind this. It looks really professional. It looks well-polished. But this is just a fundamentally bad idea. And, again, other people who are way smarter than me have gone into what. I do why, but I'm starting to wonder if the people who were in behind this have thought the one blew over the cuckoo's nest was a horror movie, which it isn't, and I'm baffled anyone would draw that conclusion. So they're making a horror sequel or a prequel? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, prequel about Nurse Ratched specifically. Again, there's a lot of talented people involved, and I don't want to say Ryan Murphy hasn't done good work, but this just feels so misguided. That it, that feels like a horrible idea. This feels like this feels. Like, I mean, I bring it up because it also feels like the anti-shock or in like the I mean, that uses very colorful or in full poppy imagery just from that trailer. And uh, this I mean, it does to an extent too, but this I mean, it does in a way that's more balanced and actually, and it doesn't have a character like Nurse Ratched who is very clearly or at least supposed to be this faceless embodiment of an of an entity. And while this has more fleshed out characters, and it's more fun and light in times this film. Yeah. It's priority. It's priorities in the right place, and it's trying. It's supposed to be a movie that I wouldn't say fun, but at least entertaining and kind of. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's not junky quite enough to be junky. Like again, next week we're going to cover a movie that is, random junky as junky gets. Yes. Which I look forward to. Yep, um, that's going to be a fun episode. Anyway, for now, shock random back shock corridor. This has been a. It's been a weird episode to record because I feel like we haven't said as much as we should have. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at my notes and they seem, I mean, pretty slim, but. Uh, I took like a page and a half of notes and I'm still kind of covering up empty. 
I ain't running on empty right now. Yeah, me too. I, t- I t- about Don't a page. Wrong. This is a great movie, and I, again, I own the Blu-ray. It's in my top random one hundred. Random, but it's kind of one of those things you had to kind of see it to be believe it. If that makes any sense. And like once you, once we've said everything there's to say about it, I mean. Mm-hmm. The, and you're kind of left with or nothing. I mean, you you just. I think the person who made it is a little more interesting. Ending and actually gets more out of it. Yeah. No. I. I mean, I definitely enjoyed it more on the second viewing. That's good to know, actually. Yeah. Although, if I'm right now, here's how I do. If you, any of you listeners, want to get into Sam Fuller, here's your little starter pack. That documentary I mentioned on the Criterion Channel: Shock Corridor, The Naked Kiss, The Steel Helmet, Underworld USA, and The Crimson Kimono. That's my starter Sam Fuller starter pack. I am copying this down. All right. Anyway, what else have you watched this week, Chandler? Last night I watched Labyrinth with David Bowie, and it was Ooh, a trip. Nice. Yes. First time. Oh yeah. Nice. Um, my girlfriend actually she uh had a copy of it and watched it when she was like really young, and it scared the crap out of her. And um, I rem- yeah. I remember uh that one was the one I I think the most experience with most people's what I share is right. There's two movies from the '80s that people distinctly remember when it comes to Jim Henson: Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. Dark Crystal is generally regarded as a scarier one, and Labyrinth is the easier watch for most people. And I am under that category because I remember I didn't really ever get around to watching the Dark Crystal until I was graduating high school. Because I remember seeing the trailer when I was young and it freaked me out. Like, really, like, everything about, I mean, like, this is familiar, but it's really uns And not, like, scary, but it was unsettling. Like, this creeping dread in the background, not something that's, like, in the, mo- in the moment, like, terrifying. Yeah. Which but- I'd argue is far scarier in hindsight. That's the kind of thing I like in horror movies, or in scary stuff. Unsettling. And, yep. Yeah. And now, now I've seen it, I love The Dark Crystal. That uh, Netflix show is also really good. I, I want to watch it. Um, no, Labyrinth was a trip, though. Um, yeah. Very freaky, very unsettling. But uh, the puppetry was so impressive, the, and the production design. Yep. I, I, it's, stuff like this is why I miss practical sets and effects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like that, because there's an actual sense of to it. Or in a physicality and a sense of life. It's, I mean, there was an interview with Steven Spielberg where he's talking about film or in a grain. He's talking about like with this still shot of a flower and how the grain interacts with it. It's a still image, but that flower feels alive. Yeah, I'm like I feel the same way about practical effects. And one of the the last thing I'll say about Labyrinth is that is one of those cases where everyone involved knew exactly the name they were playing and they play it beautifully. They do the exact just film. so frequently in tune with itself that it's kind of... Oh, yeah. Work. I hesitate to use this word. Magic. Mm. <laughs> dance, magic, dance. Oh, no. Oh, oh. Oof. No, but, um... No, they knew the exact film they wanted to make, or Henson wanted to make, and they clearly... Oh, he's always been an interesting presence in film, and, uh... Speaking of, uh, rock stars in film, this kind of circles back to that, and our very first episode, uh... I finally watched Alex Cox's Straight to Hell. Ooh, how was that? Good. Yeah, it was. I don't. I'm not. I cannot call this movie good because it is very much a ramshackle mess. But there is nothing else like it, and it is a unique experience of a thing. This has to be one of the movies that was bouncing around in uh, Robert Rodriguez and heads when dust till dawn. Because okay. it, I mean, it has that very proto Tarantino feel to it, and the way the characters dress, the settings, everything about it. Like this, feel, it feels like something Tarantino really, really dug. I like that term, proto Tarantino. Proto Tarantino. And I always hesitate comparing stuff to Tarantino because it always sounds shallow, especially when Tarantino himself draws from such a 
a wide valley of film history. Yes. History, but this specifically feels like that mid-90s frequency, just in 1987. Oh, I get that. It's also got a weirdly stacked cast, too. When, like, Courtney Love is in it, Joe Stormer from The Clash is in it, and actually is really cool in it. I really wish he acted more often, because he was an interesting screen. Him and Sting had really good screen presences. Wow, what what else is Sting in? He's been, he was in David Lynch's Dune. He was in Quadrophenia. He has a cameo in B movie because of fucking course he does. <laughs> he's I forgot about that. Yeah. Or he's in a he wasn't in a lot of narrative films, but when he showed up, he was really something. He did a, a BBC film called uh, Trimstone and Breek, Brimstone and Treacle. That's what it was called from the night from 1982. Uh, it's very hard to track down, but I remember uh, was able to find a couple of clips from it, and he is really interesting. It kind of reminds me of someone like Willem Dafoe, in a way. That kind of unsettling, unsettling uh, spookiness to him, like something sh- there's something shady about you, but I can't pin down what. Yeah, just like a dark, mysterious. Um, what else have you seen? Like, anyway, straight to hell, I want to go back on that for a minute, because that movie has a really weird class. It's got Dick Rude. Courtney Love is in it. Jim Jarmusch has a cameo in it. Nice. Elvis Costello is in it, and it, it is a who's who of like random musicians. Again, it doesn't work as a whole, but while it's on, it's kind and it's kind of fascinating. Like, there's two kinds of two and a half star movie. There's the ones that are just mediocre, and the ones that are compelling messes. This is the latter. That's that's an interesting statement, but that makes little sense. Um, I I want to get into more Alex Cox after seeing uh, Repo Man. Sid and Nancy is fantastic, by the way, if you haven't seen that. Okay, yeah. I really want to get into the Western needed uh, Walker, which I heard is really interesting. Okay. What else have I watched? I, uh... I, oh, right. You, you have, and speaking of 60s filmmakers, uh, how familiar are you with John Frankenheimer? Um, I'm totally unfamiliar. I've heard you say his name he made before. Seconds, The Manchurian Candidate. He did Reindeer Games with Ben Affleck. Not one of his best films, but one of the, probably one of his most well-known. He was a very much a premier 60s and 70s filmmaker. He also did Ronin in the late 90s, which is one of the best car chases ever. I watched, uh, since he was leaving Criterion soon, uh, I watched his film, racing film Grand Prix, which, fun fact, one, probably the first movie to actually get up close to filming Formula One cars. And that kind of thing, like, once they, I mean, once uh, John Frank, they were really hesitant about him getting that close, but... Once he showed them some test footage of what he planned to do, he was like, yes, that is perfect. That is exactly what we want, how we want people to see these cars. So they gave him carte blanche. They even let them use some of the racers. Wow. The drivers. It, it's a three-hour long movie, and it doesn't, and like a lot of Technicolor epic, or like 70 millimeter epics at this time, it doesn't always justify its length. But the car footage in this is holy shit good. Especially for its time. Like, this feels like the cutting edge. What was it called again? It's cut, it's shot. It's called Grand Prix. It would make a really good double feature with something like Ford v Ferrari. The way it shoots the car, or like the racing sequence in this, are as good as the or the action stuff in Top Gun. But also like Top Gun, everything in between is a bit of a slog. Yeah. Still, very much worth a watch. And I would, and I, and when movie theaters reopen, I would love to catch a seventy millimeter screening of this at the Cinerama Dome. That is now on my bucket list. Mm. I wish I was in a city that had, you know, cool showings like that. Um, like you, like, Rainy, yeah. like a re- art house in repertory theaters. Like, yeah. I wish in Savannah or New- Las Vegas had their own New Beverly. Because or- all we have are just the multiplexes. 
that would... and not to throw shade at our own at our own uh, indie theaters in here, but they only really do screenings every couple weeks, or even months then. even. And most of the stuff that they show is fairly popular. Like they don't really do deep cut or that much, which is a shame. It is, yeah. Um, well, I do have a great story to tell about this, but I will tell you off the mic for now. Yeah, you should you should uh, open a theater, Jack. I that's one of my you know how most people uh, dream of opening a restaurant when they retire. Yeah. My dream is to open something like a New Beverly, where I just not always on film, but at least older stuff. Yeah, that would be so sick. Anyway, wait, Grand Prix is a great one. I also, uh, I'm going to be on another podcast talking, guest talking about this, but I rewatched the Pirates, the Gorgovinsky Pirates movies recently, and wow, those might be even better than I remember. They legitimately have aged great. <laughs> like, God, I miss blockbusters that feel like this. Oh, yeah. Just like... I mean, ones that are shot with imagination and energy and, and color and life and spontaneity and humor or that actually land, lands in... I also forgot how fucking gross these movies are, but not in a, or in a disgusting way, but like a, or in a charming kid on a playground where I'm poking people around with a dead raccoon or something. Or like it's playfully gross. Yeah. Um, just the the 2000s great black great blockbuster period. Well, the last great time for them. I mean, they also gave us the Transformers movies, but you know, give a little, give a little, take a little, whatever. Yes. But uh, no, I would I would like to rewatch those, especially during the summertime. Um, take, yeah. takes me back. It it also reminded me uh, that we we're about that. Vi- we're we're gonna get to this because there's a bonus episode I plan on doing where we talk about our favorite unmade movies, like the scripts that the scripts or concepts that float around but never made it. One of which is the Bioshock movie Gore Verbinski and John Logan almost made. Because if you look at the concept art and I've re- and I've uh, seen descriptions of the script and it would have been something. Yeah, that sounds epic. I'll send you a link about it because it is really a fascinating. I th- I'm not too. Ultimately, I'm a little more uh, ha- fine that it's not going to get made, probably, or at least not in his hand- hands, because we did get a cure for wellness, and that more or less explores the same territory he was going to do with this. Uh, but what could have been, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's still it's fun. I would like to cover and, uh, a not cure for too wellness. Much that episode. There's a great script uh, Brian De Palma wrote for a remake of Treasure of the Sierra Madre that probably would have been one of the best adventure films in the '90s. Probably would have sparked spark the the adventure boom again if it weren't before Pirates of the Caribbean, and if it got made because that is a damn damn good script. Nice. Yeah. Um, anyway, ultimate yeah. thoughts on Shock Um, uh, I I like I said I definitely liked it a lot more on the second viewing. Um, I mean I'd give it a, I'd give it a solid eight. I'm bouncing back and forth between an 8 and a 9. I'm probably more 8 this viewing, though. Yeah, how many... This is about as solid as B-movies get. Like, I think yeah. the best thing in, movie, in movies in general, not just exploitation B-movies, is when they balance idea, or ideas with fun. fun. Like, just because you're, you're taking things seriously doesn't mean you can't have fun and balance it out. Or at least it's something entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how many times have you seen this film? Twice now. Nice. I saw it first last summer, and now I I got the criteria I got the Blu-ray during uh, the during the Criterion sale last November. And uh, yeah, funny thing is they actually uh, this and the Naked Kiss have a done by the uh, artist behind Ghost World. Oh, cool! Yeah, no, he yeah. those illustrations for the little booklet on the inside. It's really cool. I do like the um the covers for this and the Naked Kiss. 
from the, yeah. from the cartoon. They're re- I think they captured the film perfectly. Yeah, totally. Anyway, thanks for listening. As for usual, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever the hell you get your podcasts. I'm, assume, I'm assuming we're, we can't pro- make promises happily everywhere, but we are in the big two, that's for sure. Yeah. You can find me on Letterboxd, Shannon Williams. And you can find me, Letterboxd, Jack Rourke. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, at Warp Celluloid. If you have a request for a film or maybe want to guest star, just DM us. We're open. Totally. Yeah. We're all yours. Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Yeah.